Good evening. So it's good to be here with you again to be continuing on this Dharma journey, exploring, experiencing these Dharma adventures with all of you. So tonight, just continuing with this metaphor of being on a journey, a journey that's following the Noble Eightfold Path. Tonight I wanted to explore a specific factor of that path, one that's always needed, always relevant, both here on retreat and in daily life too. And that's the path factor of right effort. So right effort. And just before I go any further into the talk, let's take a moment just to pause. And in the silence, I invite you to notice any responses to that topic. So when you hear this term, right effort, what thoughts or images, associations, emotions, beliefs come up, if any? What does right effort mean to you? So based on my own experience and also exploring this with many students, there are some pretty common responses to this term, right effort. And one is some form of, oh no, here we go. Teachers think we're not trying hard enough. They're going to tell us about how in Asia meditators only get four hours sleep a night. (laughs) I feel exhausted even thinking about that. In fact, maybe I'll go to bed as soon as this talk's over. (laughs) And a second common response might be more like, oh good, finally we get to the real practice. Enough of all that fluffy stuff about kindness and compassion. It's time to really crank it up now. No more naps for me. I'm going to try for three hours sleep tonight. And then for other people, maybe there's not much response at all. So if that's you, you can just abide in equanimity. So whatever your response might have been, I invite you just to notice that without judgment as useful information about how you might be relating to your practice. Because for many people, just the term right effort tends to bring up all kinds of assumptions and beliefs views, self-views. And if we're not aware of these views, they tend to drive our practice in ways that often aren't so skillful, tending to push us into habits of either too much effort on one side or not enough on the other. So this evening, I'd like to first explore right effort more generally, and then take some time to explore how the Buddha himself defined right effort in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path. Because his definition is much more nuanced, much more specific than might be apparent when we just take this term right effort at face value. Now unfortunately in our dominant, due to our dominant cultural conditioning, which tends to reward striving an aggressive and self-punishing effort. And because of that dominant conditioning, it's not sustainable, and it often pushes us to the brink of collapse, or at times even beyond. 
And it seems to inculcate in us a very binary approach, all or nothing, boom or bust. And many of us bring that same approach to how we show up on retreat, not maybe recognizing the irony of forcing ourselves to relax or pushing ourselves to be more peaceful. (laughs) So in my own case, I shared with many of you, I assumed that right effort meant blood, sweat, and tears. (laughs) And for the first few years of my practice, I brought a pretty grim and rigid attitude to meditation that at times turned it into an exercise in masochism. And particularly on retreat, this attitude tended to go into overdrive, and I pushed myself in ways that, with hindsight, were pretty unhealthy. Until finally, after getting to the point of collapse, I listened to my teachers, and finally (laughs) understood that a more nuanced approach was needed. So here's an embarrassing story, another one. On my first three-month retreat, my interview teacher was Joseph, and he could see, I guess, that I was pretty wound up. And so in the first meeting, he said, you just need to relax. And I thought, oh, he thinks I'm a beginner. I better prove to him I'm not a beginner. (laughs) So I tried even harder, and I came in, and I was like more uptight, more pushing, totally oblivious. And he said, you really need to relax. I thought, wow, he's not getting that I'm a really serious meditator. And this went on for weeks until finally I was not able to practice at all. And then I realized, oh, maybe he's got a point. (laughs) So, So we share these kind of, I don't know what they are, horror stories, so that you don't have to hopefully go through, make the same mistakes that we've made. Even so, I think this pattern is pretty common, not only today for the reasons I mentioned earlier in relation to conditioning, but even at the time of the Buddha. In fact, even the Buddha himself struggled to find balance in relation to effort before he became fully enlightened. And I find that slightly reassuring. So I'd like to just give you a quick overview of the process that the Buddha went through before he found the middle way, the middle way being the balance between extremes of self-mortification on one hand and self-indulgence on the other. So as many of you know, according to the discourses, the Buddha-to-be, as, or Siddhartha Gautama, as he was known before his awakening, he was born a prince in northern India. So he was able to live a life of total ease and luxury, He could indulge in every kind of sense pleasure imaginable. But this wasn't satisfying, and at the age of 27, he went through a kind of existential crisis, and he renounced the life of luxury. He set off in search of a more meaningful life. And he sought out the most renowned spiritual teachers of his day, and he spent seven years as a hardcore ascetic, practicing extreme austerities because in India at that time this was believed to be the way to enlightenment. And the Buddha-to-be was a very dedicated student so he practiced these austerities so diligently that he almost died of starvation. Now fortunately for him and for us at that point he realized that maybe this approach wasn't working so well and he had a breakthrough. 
According to the legend, he suddenly remembered a pleasant memory from his childhood. So he remembered back when he was about seven years old, he had been sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And because it was pleasant, he spontaneously slipped into a state of deep concentration. And this profound peace of mind was very pleasant. And so not long after remembering this, it said that the Buddha-to-be became the Buddha. He realized that pleasant, skillful mental states were what had been missing from his practice. And he woke up, realized Nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So it's significant then that the first discourse that the Buddha gave after his awakening was a teaching on the middle way, the need to find balance between the extremes of self-indulgence on one hand, self-torture on the other. Now bringing that into the context of what we're doing here on this retreat, I think most of us at times can relate to the tendency towards self-indulgence, making too little effort, But when we hear about the extremes of physical self-torture, that might seem bizarre to us today. It's not generally part of our culture. But what is part of our dominant culture and is extremely common is psychological self-torture. So many of us are our own worst enemies, constantly judging and criticizing and undermining ourselves. So even though we might know intellectually that all of the Buddha's teachings are framed around balance, it can be surprisingly difficult to find that balance in relation to effort. Again, because of our dominant culture valuing busyness and productivity and competitiveness and perfectionism, when we hear the term right effort, it can easily trigger inadequacy. So we tend to push far too hard and then collapse back into exhausted apathy. We seem to be very dualistic creatures, approaching everything that we do in a pretty binary way, all or nothing. We get caught in ideas of good and bad and right and wrong and success and failure. And those binaries make the balance of right effort pretty elusive, hard to recognize. So the first step in exploring right effort is to recognize our own default tendencies. Because most of us do tend to default more to one end of that scale than the other. Either to push ourselves too hard or to take it just a bit too easy. So I'm going to say a little bit about how these default imbalances might show up on retreat and some ways we can bring them back into balance. But there's a challenge here, because some of what I'm going to say is only going to apply to the too tight people, and some of it is only going to apply to the too loose people. And I know that we tend to listen selectively to these talks (laughs) and hear only the bits that we want to hear, which are usually the bits that reinforce our existing conditioning. (laughs) So in relation to effort, the two tight people hear the instructions for the two loose people and decide they need to work much harder. 
and the two loose people hear the instructions for the two tight people and they're happy that they can slack off even more. (laughs) So maybe the first right effort is to make the effort to not do that (laughs) and see if you can just take in those instructions that help you come back to balance. Okay, so the first common tendency, making too much effort, We see this often in the beginning phase of a retreat. We show up with an abundance of determination, but often also a lot of exhaustion because of the stresses of everyday life. But in spite of that, we override the exhaustion. We push ourselves to attend every single sitting, and we force ourselves to focus continually on the breath, and we yank our attention back there with an attitude of aversion every time the mind wanders. And we try extra hard in the walking and we fixate on every single step. We push ourselves to get up early in the morning and stay up late in the evening. But the tension that this produces at some point becomes unsustainable. Before long, we collapse into a phase of exhausted apathy. We're forced to take a period to recover. And then the whole cycle starts again. We push too hard, we collapse, we recover a bit, we push too hard, we collapse again. We just swing back and forth from striving to apathy, striving to apathy. Does anybody recognize that? So to me, it's so common that I um, give it a name. I call it the superhero to slug syndrome. (laughs) So when we're in superhero mode, we believe that unless we're making 110% effort all day long, we're going to stall completely. And if that happens, we'll turn back into that loathsome slug that we used to be, which ironically is often what happens. Because we exhaust ourselves in the effort to be superhuman, we burn out and find ourselves back in slug mode. So if you recognize this pattern in yourself, it's important not to take it personally. Again, this conditioning that comes not only from society, but maybe our families. So if we want to find a more balanced approach, we need to recognize that energy of forcing or pushing the practice in some way. One place to look is at the end of the sitting when you hear the bell ring. If at the sound of the bell there is a tidal wave of relief, that could be a sign that you've been trying a little bit too hard. Because you might notice that, in fact, the moment before the bell rings, the moment after the bell rings, they're both equal opportunities to be mindful. So we want to try to bring this relaxed continuity of awareness through everything we're doing through the day, to flatten the hierarchy in some ways that puts sitting at the top where we make lots of effort, walking just underneath it where we're kind of mindful and then everything else is just kind of a vacation. As Kim said the other night, we don't want to reduce the wisdom in order to raise the energy. We don't want to reduce our mindfulness to the lowest common denominator. But what we do want to do is raise the mindfulness in our everyday activities to the same level of what happens here in the hall. It may sound counterproductive, but it's actually less effort to have that relaxed continuity 
than a sort of binary stop start try too hard and the try too hard and the whole bell rings slacken off a bit come back try again so you might want to experiment that if, with that if you're finding a little bit too much tightness here so in some ways this practice of finding balance it's a practice of listening and in the buddha's teachings there's a well-known metaphor for this there's a discourse that describes how one of the buddha's students had been a musician a lute player before he ordained and when this man sona became a monk he was really struggling to find right effort he was trying far too hard and he wasn't making any real progress so frustrated he went to the buddha and asked for advice and the buddha asked him well, when you played the lute if you wanted a good sound did you tune the strings very tight of course the answer is no and then the buddha asked well if you want a good sound did you tune the strings too loose again no we need to tune the strings just right the midpoint between too loose too tight and we do that by listening by sensitizing ourselves listening to our bodies our hearts our minds to recognize what for us is too tight what's too loose in any given situation because situations conditions are always changing so this is a practice of deep listening to our own inner experience to our outer circumstances so that we learn what is balanced effort for us but then even when we have found that midpoint we need to keep checking because just like with a lute you don't tune it once and then that's it forever any instrument goes out of tune after a while same with our practice what's right effort right now in this sitting will be different in the next one will be different in the walking different next week or next month different if we're sick or injured and some of you here on retreat have physical issues and health challenges that you need to take care of and so finding the middle way for any of us is a very individual thing now whether we have health challenges or not we want to keep tuning in and adjusting to find the appropriate effort it's a little bit similar to the analogy that bante buddha rakita gave the other day when he talked about driving so we understand when we're driving through a small rural town that's very different from driving on the freeway just like driving a car it's not skillful to be always flooring it 90 or 100 miles an hour no matter what the circumstances are and yet metaphorically that's what so many of us try to do on our retreat practice so finding balance involves listening moment to moment noticing also the bigger patterns of how we might get off balance so so far mostly i've been talking about the tendency towards striving too much effort but there are also times when the pendulum swings the other way and we slide into complacency or apathy and for some of us lack of effort might be more of our habitual pattern we hear about the need for steady effort or continuous mindfulness or discipline and something in us consciously or unconsciously rebels and we just pull back 
into our comfort zones. Now, on one level, this is natural. Of course, we love comfort. And given the choice, some of us would happily stay in our comfort zones forever if we could. So there's a Tibetan teacher who complained about this with his students. He said he was constantly telling them to wake up, but he said they're like marsupials and they just keep wriggling back down into the pouch. <laughs> and I think you know, we can relate to that. There's something in all of us who might like to just be a marsupial. <laughs> and maybe some of you are wondering, well, what's the problem with just staying in your comfort zone? Well, one, it's not possible. <laughs> And two, even if it were possible, the downside of staying in our comfort zones is that they tend to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And we can see those strategies playing out even here on retreat where our options are quite limited. We quickly develop strategies for staying comfortable. So you might have noticed we set up a routine for ourselves of when we're going to nap and when we're going to take a shower and when we're going to take tea and when we're going to have a snack. And even though we're invited to cultivate relinquishment and accept conditions as we find them, we still have our favorite place to sit in the dining room where we always sit and we have our favorite place to walk, which everyone should know is our track. And if someone instantly happens to walk on our track right when we were going to, we can get quite upset. I've seen that a few times on retreat. So we all have these strategies for keeping ourselves comfortable. Maybe we tell ourselves it's just good self-care. And again, in terms of cultural conditioning, this term self-care is becoming more and more commonplace. And we can rationalize our complacency or our self-indulgence as self-care. Okay, I say we, I mean I. I have to confess there have been times on retreat when I've tried this trick, where instead of following the schedule after a while, usually after a period of trying too hard, I've told myself, oh, I just need to ease up a bit. And maybe at one point that might be true, but it, can, it quickly became an unconscious habit of taking it a bit too easy. So instead of sitting, walking, sitting, walking, it became sit one, nap one, sit a half of one, nap two, walk a little bit, lie down a bit more. <laughs> Lying down meditation, that's good self-care, right? The Buddha said there were four postures, one of them's lying down, and so on and so on. And of course, for some people, lying down is a useful posture at times. But for me, in that case, because the motivation was unconscious uh, complacency, it drifted into sleep, to boredom, to restlessness, to guilt, to anxiety, before eventually I recognized the imbalance. So always with the caveat of listening to ourselves and finding for ourselves what is the appropriate effort. If you do notice that your practice is sliding into complacency, it might be helpful just to remind yourself of your deepest aspirations. And also, what a rare and precious opportunity we have here to be on a longer retreat. 
So you might explore, in my case, that napping. Is this what I'm doing now really in service of that deeper aspiration? Am I moving in the direction of total freedom, this practice that the Buddha offered us? So this freedom that's being offered is not about getting comfortable by constantly manipulating our external conditions. Instead, it comes from training our inner capacity to let go, to let be. And when we can accept conditions as they are, we're not dependent on them for our happiness. However, if our default strategy has always been to avoid discomfort, then when we do run into life's inevitable challenges, we won't have strengthened the inner resources to be able to meet it. So here on retreat, to some extent, we can make ourselves more comfortable. We can get an extra meditation cushion or take a hot shower, have a cup of tea or eat a piece of chocolate, take a painkiller, secretly play with our phones or do whatever we need to to take the edge off any unpleasantness. But at some point for any of us, there'll be situations where our usual strategies either don't work or aren't available. And eventually, every one of us here is going to have to face into our aging, times illness, dying, if we aren't already. So here on retreat, we have such a precious opportunity to be strengthening that capacity to be with what's challenging. And it's a bit like lifting weights. I think you can tell I'm not a weightlifter, but I understand that you don't start with 50 or 100 pound weights. You start gradually with 5 or 10 pounds and then gradually work up to the bigger ones. And in the same way, we can train on retreat that muscle of being able to meet discomfort with more ease. So just to get a sense now of how the Buddha defined right effort, a little more specifically in the Noble Eightfold Path, because the actual definition of right effort, it's much more nuanced than it might sound in English. So in English, when we hear right effort, it tends to set up a binary of right effort and wrong effort. But in the Noble Eightfold Path, the Buddha broke right effort down into four parts. All of these aspects of right effort are about knowing what's happening in our minds, knowing our mental state. So the first two aspects of right effort are to do with releasing unskillful mental states. And then the last two aspects are to do with cultivating skillful mind states. So just to quote, when the Buddha is asked to define right effort, the first part he said, here a person rouses their will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts their mind, and strives to restrain the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states. That's a pretty (laughs) complex statement. But basically it's saying, do what we can to prevent the hindrances, the afflictive qualities, the challenging mind states to come up in the first place. And you might get a sense from the language, that takes quite a bit of effort to do. 
especially in the beginning, it's not easy to stop the mind from getting overrun by greed, hatred, delusion. So the language here is, it's pretty emphatic. Make an effort, stir up energy, exert ourselves and strive. So you might be confused because haven't I just been saying striving is a problem? (laughs) Will-driven striving is a problem. Over-efforting is a problem. But it is possible to strive skillfully to make effort in a balanced way. So perhaps for some of you that might sound like a paradox. So just briefly, one way we might tell the difference between skillful effort and forceful striving is to notice the amount of self-referencing thoughts in the mind. So if we're making effort and it's coming with a lot of thoughts about me and my practice, did anybody notice how perfectly mindful my walking is right now? Or did they notice how clumsy I was in the dining room when I dropped lettuce all over the floor? And hmm, that blissful sitting, does that mean I've just attained something special? How am I going to describe this to my teacher so they really get it? Or maybe I should stay up extra late tonight so I'll have an even better experience to report. And all of this effort is revolving around me. And that mental chatter itself can be an indication, unbalanced effort, because it's rooted in wanting, not wanting, an identification with being someone special. So here is where we might need to shift from the first aspect of right effort to the second So the first aspect, remember, was to prevent unwholesome states from coming up in the first place. But the Buddha was a realist, and so the second effort is to, when afflictive states have come up, to make the effort to let them go, to abandon them. So here, if when we recognize the hindrances and so forth have come up, we need to make the effort to help them release. And Bhante Buddha Akita gave a whole talk on this the other night in his talk on the hindrances. So I'm not going to go into that in too much detail now. I, just from hearing in the practice meetings, all of you already are learning very powerfully how to help the hindrances to release. So for the time we've got left tonight, what I want to do is focus more on the last two aspects aspects of right effort, because in many ways they are less familiar. They're to do with how we relate to skillful mind states. And as many of you are reporting, now that there's less of the hindrances coming into play, in their place, some of the more beneficial mind states are coming up. So the sequence of these four efforts is significant. They describe the arc of how our practice unfolds. First, we clear out the afflictive states, and then almost literally there's more room in the heart and the mind for the skillful states to come up. So the third effort is described like this. Here, a person rouses their will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts their mind, and strives to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states. 
In other words, we're being invited to actively cultivate skillful mind states. Skillful mind states like the four Brahma-Vihara, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, the seven awakening factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi, equanimity. And we'll be talking more about those later in the retreat. So we have a whole range of skillful states that we're being invited to develop here. And maybe surprisingly for some people, this invitation to turn towards the skillful states can be challenging because it often brings us into direct contact with some pretty deep conditioning, starting with the mind's inbuilt negativity bias, which as neuroscience has discovered means that we tend to pay far more attention to what's unpleasant and painful than to what's pleasant and nourishing. And when it comes to the wholesome mental states, precisely because they aren't threatening in any way, it can be very easy to overlook them. So we have this sort of biological inbuilt negativity bias, but then often on top of that, there's a whole pile of social and cultural conditioning that reinforces it. And this ties into the dominant culture values that I mentioned earlier. So values of needing to be constantly productive, almost to justify our existence by achieving and attaining and making progress. That's one aspect. And sometimes we find a kind of puritanism that has us unconsciously believe that if something is pleasant, then it can't be spiritual. And also vice versa, that somehow this practice is supposed to be uncomfortable, difficult, even painful. And if it's not those things, if it's neutral or heaven forbid, enjoyable, we're obviously doing something wrong. We're not working hard enough or going deep enough or seeing clearly enough. So if you happen to recognize this kind of bias in your practice, you might from time to time experiment with just opening to pleasant experiences every now and then. Notice how you're relating to them. Is there resistance or is there grasping? So the invitation is to open to more of the full spectrum of experience, not just focus on the unpleasant ones. And sometimes this invitation to tune into pleasant sense-based experience helps to strengthen pleasant, skillful states of heart and mind. So remembering the Buddha's example of sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree His body, mind relaxed and he slipped into deep concentration. So this third aspect of right effort is pointing us to tune into these skillful states and just the act of recognizing them makes them stronger and then they become resources that support and build confidence in the practice and our capacity to do it. Now, because these states generally feel pretty pleasant, they can set up a powerful feedback loop that flows quite naturally into the fourth aspect of right effort. Here, a person rouses their will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, 
exerts their mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So now, once these skillful states have started to come up, the effort is to help them to steady and to strengthen, so that over time, they just become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. And even though these states are usually experienced as pleasant, this phase of the practice too has its own set of challenges. And as I mentioned earlier, because of the mind's negativity bias, we tend to be much more habituated to paying attention to our problems than to what's going well. And we can see this bias in our meditation practice too. We're so used to just wrestling with sense desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt. And when those are gone, we don't know what to do. The hindrances may be unpleasant, but at least they kept us occupied. (laughs) And so, conversely, when these more coarse or gross mental states are less predominant, sometimes it can feel like there's nothing happening in our practice, or even that we've lost our mindfulness, because we can't really say what we're aware of anymore. And sometimes this is because our mindfulness isn't yet quite refined enough to notice those more subtle mind states. So occasionally people will come into their practice meetings and tell me, well, nothing's going on, nothing's happening. Now what am I supposed to do? But when we inquire together, well, what, what actually is that experience of nothing? They might say, when nothing was happening... Was there any trace of calm? And usually the answer is yes. Was there a quality of steadiness? Yes. Was there some openness or clarity or equanimity or spaciousness and so on? So if we look a little more carefully, we can often find those some more refined states that are starting to develop. Even so, for many people... This they can be an acquired taste. We might start to recognize how at times we've been unconsciously addicted to the drama of the practice, the highs and the lows. Maybe we've been craving for intensity or searching for catharsis, or perhaps even afraid of that more balanced and nuanced range of experiences. And so when the practice does start to settle into a more stable and quiet phase, we might start trying to get some of that familiar intensity back by pushing and forcing and striving. So we need to train ourselves to gradually get used to how does it feel when the mind is without lust or greed, when it's without anger or fear and it's without delusion or ignorance. And the absence of these afflictive states, maybe it doesn't last very long, but every moment that we're in them, they give the nervous system a deep rest, even at times a reset. And they start to loosen what some teachers refer to as karmic knots. I think Rebecca mentioned this the other night. 
those aspects of our personal history or our conditioning that can feel very deep, sticky, entangled. And sometimes as those knots start to loosen, it can feel more like unraveling or even falling apart. And this is because our usual defense mechanisms and our self-protection strategies are starting to get a little weaker and softer. We might feel like we're on shaky ground at times. And sometimes we can experience a kind of internal backlash to this newfound spaciousness. I don't know if you've noticed this, but sometimes there's uh, opening into more ease and peace, and then suddenly the mind just goes into overdrive and telling itself all kinds of ridiculous stories and full-blown fantasies and creating imaginary doomsday scenarios, anything at all to sabotage this shift into a new and more open way of being. So this phase of the practice, it can be quite uncomfortable at times. It's a phase of transition, maybe, almost like being adolescent again. That awkwardness of puberty when we're not really an adult, we're not still a child, and it's maybe more poetically the metamorphosis of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. So just like when a butterfly first emerges from the tight confines of the cocoon, it needs to rest and to allow the soft structure of its wings to harden before it can fly. So in a similar way, if we do have at times this sense of transition and the shakiness or the groundlessness or the fear, we need to give ourselves space and rest and offer ourselves immense patience and kindness. And as best we can to trust that everything we're experiencing is part of a natural unfolding. And it's one that many other Dharma practitioners have experienced before us, have also been through, and come out the other side in good shape. So as we get used to this shift from unskillful to more skillful mental states, we can move into an even more refined stage of the practice. And at this stage, where we're maintaining wholesome mental states that have arisen, not letting them fade away, bringing them to greater growth, the amount of effort that we need becomes less and less. And at this point in the practice, even the slightest movement into micromanaging our experience can interfere with the natural unfolding. And there's a significant shift that happens at this point. So Joseph Goldstein talks about a change in how we're relating to the Dharma, a shift from thinking in terms of what can I get from this practice to what can I give to it. So implicit in that shift is a kind of surrender, a letting go of being in control. And I think of this as being a shift from what I call will-driven practice to dharma-driven practice. So by will-driven, I mean that tendency I described earlier of having all the effort we make keep referring back to a sense of me who's doing it all. Whereas what I'm calling dharma-driven practice, 
is what happens when that me-centeredness releases, at least to some extent, so that the Dharma can move through us unimpeded. So saying Dharma-driven is not really accurate because it's not driven so much as more effortless. So paradoxically, this aspect of right effort is the effort to make no effort, or maybe what in the Zen tradition they call effortless effort. So here what we're doing is getting out of the way and not judging ourselves when inevitably at times we do get caught again in taking the practice personally, trying to micromanage it, striving in some way. We find balance by knowing when we're off balance. And just like riding a bike, even the most experienced rider is still making micro-wobbles in order to stay upright. And with experience, it takes much less effort to do that. So this kind of effortless effort is a fruit of the practice. And at times we can experience it as a kind of positive chain reaction where one skillful mental quality develops and then quite naturally it flows into the next and the next and the next in a kind of effortless upward spiral. And some of you have been describing this experience. There are several passages in the suttas that uh, lay out this kind of natural momentum. So I'd like to close with one example from the Anguttara Nikaya that describes this positive chain reaction of skillful mind state. It starts with paying attention, recognizing our ethical conduct, our sila, our virtue. And all of us here on this retreat, certainly in comparison to the world out there, we're living in a pretty refined way here. So the basis of this chain reaction is skillful ethical conduct. And that appreciation of our virtue, it naturally gives rise to freedom from remorse, which leads to joy and then on to other skillful states, all the way up to the highest possible state, Nibbana, or the highest possible experience, which is referred to liberation in this translation. So the translation I'm going to give is based on one by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Just to acknowledge, some of the language is a little archaic or complex. Some of the terms might be unfamiliar to you, but just let them wash over you and see if you can get a felt sense of how increasingly refined effort sets up this natural progression towards freedom. So practitioners, for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition, you could say no willpower, needs to be exerted. Let non-regret arise in me. It is natural that non-regret arises in a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous. For one without regret... No volition needs to be exerted. Let joy arise in me. It's natural that joy arises in one without regret. For one who is joyful, no volition need be exerted. Let rapture arise in me. 
It is natural that rapture arises in one who is joyful. For one with a rapturous mind, no volition need be exerted. Let my body be tranquil. It is natural that the body of one with a rapturous mind is tranquil. For one tranquil in body, no volition need be exerted. Let me feel pleasure. It is natural that one tranquil in body feels pleasure. For one feeling pleasure, no volition need be exerted. Let my mind be concentrated. It is natural that the mind of one feeling pleasure is concentrated. For one who is concentrated, no volition need be exerted. Let me know and see things as they really are. It is natural that one who is concentrated knows and sees things as they really are. For one who knows and sees things as they really are, no volition need be exerted. Let me, dis- let me be disenchanted and dispassionate. It is natural that one who knows and sees things as they really are is disenchanted and dispassionate. For one who is disenchanted and dispassionate, no volition need be exerted. Let me realize the knowledge and vision of liberation. It is natural that one who is disenchanted and dispassionate realizes the knowledge and vision of liberation. So may we all cultivate those skillful mental qualities that lead effortlessly, naturally, to realizing the knowledge and vision of liberation, the deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.